Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back for another segment of On the Record with Tiffany. Today, I have one of my favorite doctors as a guest, uh, Dr. Donald Wesson. Dr. Wesson, will you tell my audience a little bit about yourself and why you're here? Well, thanks, Tiffany, for having me. Uh, I'm a kidney doctor by training and just recently retired as president of the Baylor Scott & White Health and Wellness Center which is a population health entity of Baylor Scott & White Health in in Dallas. Uh, My focus for many years has been how do we not only better treat chronic kidney disease, but how do we even prevent chronic kidney disease? And as you and I have talked about over the years, Tiffany, uh, 20 years ago, research in my basic science laboratory in animals showed that uh, a plant-based diet was kidney healthy. In other words, it slowed the worsening of kidney disease in these animals. And we were able to translate these studies into people. And we were able to show the same thing there. That is a primarily plant-based diet is kidney healthy in that these individuals who already have a reduced kidney function the, pro, the, the rate of worsening can be reduced by this plant-based diet. And so that is something that we have now began instituting locally here in Dallas as a way by which to uh, prevent worsening of kidney disease in individuals who either have kidney disease or at risk of having kidney disease. And so that then points to my latest focus is to establish an infrastructure for what we call community-based management of chronic kidney disease. In other words, pushing that management from the doctor's office to include it being done in communities in places where folks at risk of chronic kidney disease already live. Now, Dr. Wesson, one of the reasons why uh, I brought you on is because you are a pioneer in that. That's not a new concept that you you are are talking about in inclusion of the community. It's actually something that you work. You, I think you've you've created the best model I've seen of that. So can you tell well, tell us a little bit about? Well, I it? appreciate that, uh, Tiffany, and it really is just based on uh, research that uh, people have have developed over the years. We recognize that all chronic disease is, uh, the outcomes for it, is minimally uh, improved by medical care. In fact, overall chronic disease, uh, the studies show that uh, medical care that we as medical professionals render uh, contributes to about 20% of the outcomes of chronic uh, uh, disease. That is, you can 20% of what makes folks better is happening in the doctor's office. 60% is what happens outside of the doctor's office. That is how we live, mostly how we eat and how we move. It's these so-called lifestyle uh, modifications. And a big part of lifestyle modification is what we eat. And so what we have really done in uh, and the work that we've done here in Dallas is simply applied these lifestyle modifications at the level of the community and provided an infrastructure by which folks can eat better and move better. And our studies, as you and I have talked over the years, have shown that this community-based management is helpful. Now, I'm not saying that you should abandon your doctor and not see your doctor at all. <laughs> Let me get that clear from from the start. That's right. Don't okay. don't send us any emails or letters about about abandoning your doctor. Nobody's telling you to all. do that. In fact, quite <laughs> the contrary. The the these so called lifestyle changes are good accompaniments of the medical care that the medical professionals uh, provide. So, uh, uh, diabetes is probably the best example. We've known 
for decades that the best way to manage diabetes is medical care, healthy eating, and healthy moving. In other words, uh, exercise. We've known that yep. for years. The problem has been that we've got a good infrastructure for the medical part, but we don't have a good infrastructure to support folks doing the nutrition or the healthy eating part and the healthy moving or increasing our physical activity part. We've translated that into what the care that we do for chronic kidney disease in that we continue to the, the, the uh, standard management, medication management and the like for chronic kidney disease, but very importantly have added the nutritional component and the physical activity component and setting up an infrastructure that the, the, the food component and the physical activity component can be done in the communities where individuals live. So they don't have to come see us in the doctor's office right. to eat well. They don't have to come see us in the doctor's office to uh, have structured physical activity. We've set up these infrastructures at local churches and community centers. Mm -hmm. So that's the key. Don't you don't cut off from your doctor. You continue to have a good relationship with your doctor because he or she is providing that medical care. But what is very important is added to that medical care are the so-called lifestyle modifications, which include primarily healthy eating and healthy movement. But it's easier to learn healthy eating from people that that uh, you already know or in an environment that you already know and that you're comfortable in. Um, so I, I really love this model. You know, I say all the time that that um, the only reason why I'm not in the same boat as as the rest of my family, I've lost nine family members to kidney disease. Um, and I have three who have it right now, three who are, are uh, in in stage renal disease right now, others who have uh, other stages of kid of chronic kidney disease. And uh it was the change. It was changing what I ate. It was losing a hundred and eighty-seven pounds in a two and a half year period. I tried everything. I tried uh, weight loss surgery. I tried, uh, you know, pills. I tried uh, extreme diets. I tried regular diets. I tried, you know, <laughs> tried all of the stuff, and then I finally made the decision that I was going to do it. Like, regardless of what went on, I would get this weight off because uh, at that time, my husband and I were getting were uh, getting ready to adopt a little girl. And when we found out that we could adopt her, that, you know, I knew that I could not be a 340-pound mother and turn my little girl into a 340-pound little girl. You know, because she would want to be who I was, and and that was a part of who I was at that time. So, um, yes. but uh, that change ten years ago changed my life. I stopped being diabetic. I was diabetic. I had hypertension. I had an enlarged heart. You know, I mean, you name it. I had that. I had the problem: sleep apnea acid reflux, you know, just, just, uh, uh, you know, I had problems with my joints and knees and, uh, all of that changed as I began, when I started losing the weight, uh, now for me to lose the weight, I had to unplug from television. And I thought, because I had to change how I thought I had to change the ticker tape that was running in my head, uh, which is, is, far more than just uh, uh, not eating ice cream, you know, <laughs> yes. a weight problem of that nature means that you, 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 how you are relating to people and food is fundamentally wrong and you need to change it. <laughs> well, Tiffany, what you're describing is one of the things that we've recognized in our work over the last 10 years or so is that we, we really have to change uh, the medical model that mm -hmm. all of us medical professionals were trained to what we call a health model. Yes. And so from the medical standpoint, the way that we've trained folks in this country and not, not just in this country, across the world, is to passively receive health care from health care professionals. 
problems. In mm-hmm. other words, when I have a health problem, I go and see a healthcare professional, commonly a physician, and she or he then provides help to me, passively receive it. Mm-hmm. What you, what your story has demonstrated and what I experienced in Dallas has shown is that the, the successful model is having the individuals partner with their health care provider as an active participant. Exactly. So they, they, aren't, they aren't simply passively receiving health care. They are receiving direction from their health care provider, but they are actively participating in their care. And this goes beyond simply following the doctor's or nurse's orders or taking medication when you take it. Yes, you should do that. But in addition, it's eating as you have described. It is moving. And notice I'm very carefully not using that four-letter word exercise. Mm -hmm. We are increasing our physical activity because when you tell folks they need to exercise, they don't listen to you. They shut down. That's it. (laughs) But when you say, let's increase your physical activity, then most folks say, tell me more. Uh So the real key is us now becoming active participants in our health. And our major contribution to our health in collaboration with our healthcare providers is healthy eating Mm -hmm. and healthy moving. And then being directed as to the medical component by our healthcare provider. So for us, the recipe for health is three components, medical, nutrition, and physical activity. That's what we call health. And so I I was told that as a physician that I was trained to provide health care. But what I've learned over the last 30 years or so is that that's not correct. I was trained to provide medical care. The other two components that are important are nutrition and physical activity. That completes the healthcare equation. And you have been listening to Dr. Donald Wesson on On the Record with Tiffany. Come back for our next segment. Keep listening because Dr. Wesson is teaching us how to be an empowered, active participant in our healthcare because that's what helps that's what will help us beat things like a pandemic, like Uh, the epidemic of chronic kidney disease, and many of the other ailments that are out there that are are plaguing our society. We have to take control of the things that we can control, and that's what we put in our mouths and how we move. Come back. Listen to Dr. Wesson. If you have uh, kidney disease in your family, if you have diabetes or hypertension, you're going to want to come and listen to what Dr. Wesson has to say. Dr. Wesson, will you uh, talk with us a little bit about your model of medical nutrition and physical activity and how that relates to what's going on in the kidney community today? Well, let's talk about chronic disease in general. As we've talked about before, the greatest single contribution to good outcomes from chronic disease is lifestyle, the, and that's most notably nutrition and physical activity. The data across the board shows that about 60% of good outcomes is contributed to by uh, healthy eating and healthy moving. And the data are uh, supportive that that's the same thing, the same thing is true for chronic kidney disease. So when we talk about medical care, we're talking about what healthcare professionals like myself, physicians and nurses provide, but the other part, other two parts of the health equation is healthy eating and healthy moving. So as we were talking about last time, the health equation is medical care, nutrition, and increased physical activity. So that's with chronic disease in general. Now, chronic kidney disease is a bit special in that people can have significant kidney disease and it can advance to significantly bad stages with them feeling absolutely fine. Exactly. And 
And in fact, uh, when, when chronic kidney disease becomes symptomatic, that is when patients start to feel badly and they present themselves to a healthcare system, often the kidney disease is very far advanced and we have limited ways by which we can prevent further worsening. And many times we're talking about preparing individuals for what we call kidney replacement therapy, either kidney dialysis or kidney transplant. And so that's not an outcome that we kidney doctors want to see. We want to be able to identify individuals early, very early in the course of their progression of chronic kidney disease when they're feeling fine. Because we know when we, de when we detect it early in the course, we have the best opportunity to intervene and stop its progression, or at the very least, uh, slow its progression. And so that gets into the issue of screening for chronic kidney disease. Now, you know that's a big deal for me and for our organization, because my uh, day job, when I'm not <laughs> doing this, <laughs> is is uh, is heading up uh, the Texas Kidney Foundation. And, and our purpose is to bring awareness to uh, uh, chronic kidney disease and to screen and identify the disease early, because early detection is the key to mitigating the spread of this disease. Absolutely. If we as if we can just screen and identify the disease and begin to move people down the road to the empowering uh aspect of taking control of your health. You know, if we can get them to your medical nutrition physical activity model <laughs> from there because that's what we uh, do that's part of our continuum of care is we work with with uh, a wonderful organization called It's Time Texas, and and uh, they are lifestyle based. It, they are the lifestyle component that we utilize throughout the state because uh, they have trained nutritionists and they'll call you and text. They call our patients and text them and and uh, they have trained renal dietitians uh, that. And their job is, the, the reason I like the model is because their job is to come in and meet you where you're at. They're Absolutely. not coming in and telling you what to do. Because, you know, if, if they're running into a bunch of Tiffany's, when I was <laughs> 340 pounds, then some skinny chick can't come in and tell me what to do. You, you're going you're gonna to have to let, let me tell you what I wanted, what I'm willing to do. <laughs> well, Tiffany, I applaud the, the organization for the screening that it does because, as, as you and I have talked over the years, that's key. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about two levels of screening. Yeah. So one would be at the health system, and another, which I really advocate, is at the level of the community. Yep. So in the health system, one uh, is uh, uh, already within that system and certainly can be fairly easily screened. Uh, clearly, there are blood tests, a chemical we call creatinine in the blood, can determine the presence of chronic kidney disease. But I tell you, the one that we really focus on is this urine screening for the amount of albumin that's in the urine, it's the type of protein. The higher the albumin that's in the urine, the more at risk one is to have uh, chronic kidney disease. And so we really emphasize, particularly with my uh, primary care colleagues, that they more routinely get a urine albumin excretion or a urine albumin to creatinine ratio or an ACR. Many of the primary care doctors know what that's about, but unfortunately, it's not routinely done. And so we kidney doctors are, are emphasizing that if you have three settings, diabetes, high blood pressure, or a history of chronic kidney disease in your family, you should have uh, a urine albumin or an albumin creatinine ratio done. You say that again. If you got diabetes, you have high blood pressure, or a history of kidney disease in your family, if your uh, medical professional has not gotten that within the last year, you should encourage them to get 
uh, uh, albumin to creatinine ratio because that will determine your risk. And even if you have normal kidney function, but if you have a high albumin in your urine, that puts you at risk and you should be getting these kidney preventive kinds of interventions. Exactly. Uh, blood pressure control, particular blood pressure medicines that we use to control it, and the type of diets that we're going to talk about uh, in a second. That is the, the health system screening. What I and others and yourself have been emphasizing lately is that it, it shouldn't stop there. We should do we should do what we would call community-based screening, particularly in high-risk communities. Yes. The high-risk communities being those that are low-income, mm -hmm. predominantly African American, predominantly mm -hmm. Hispanic. If you've got communities like that, by definition, our data says that those communities are at high risk of getting chronic kidney disease. So clearly. We should focus our efforts on those high-risk communities. And so we in Dallas have done this type of screening in uh, churches, in mm -hmm. community centers, and we find an alarmingly high rate of, of chronic kidney disease just by doing routine screenings in these high-risk communities and churches and uh, uh, recreation centers. That is not a general recommendation nationally now that we do this kind of screening at the community level, but I, and I'm sure you, yes. continue to emphasize the importance of that. And I think the more data that we, our laboratory and others gather to show the importance of that community-based screening, I'm optimistic that in the future, hopefully the near future, yeah. that, that this will be a general recommendation that we do this type of community-based screening to identify individuals who have or who are at risk of chronic kidney disease so we can intervene with medical, nutrition, and physical activity interventions to reduce the risk that they will develop in stage kidney disease. Well, you know that... Uh I'm not. I'm not a medical professional. I'm uh, like I've said before. I'm the person that uh, whose family is is going through this. So, um, uh, you know, every all of our efforts at Texas Kidney Foundation are towards uh, community screenings because we know we find it at an alarming rate. Uh, it's you know, fifty six percent of the people that we test we find with. Uh, uh, some stage of chronic kidney disease. And that's because we, we do that. I mean, what you just said, if you have diabetes, hypertension, or a history of, of kidney disease in your family, then you should get tested. That's exactly what we say in every publication, everywhere <laughs> that, that somebody will give me a microphone. That is what I say. <laughs> that's what our, what our, our, uh, our spokespeople say. That's what we all say because, uh, we it's a call to action it's yes. the call to action that has to be given to people the reason why part of the reason why we're sitting uh in the position that we're in right now with a pandemic uh um basically holding everyone hostage is because uh of the underlying conditions that plague many many in this nation and many in in uh, black and brown communities who are poor. And we see that in the, the death numbers that are, are rising, ever rising uh, with this plague that we are experiencing right now, our pandemic that we're experiencing right now called COVID-19. You know, as, as, we, as, we, as, as I get the pleasure of dealing with uh, level-headed people like you <laughs> who, have, who have really done great work on uh, for decades for people uh, in black and brown communities. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel hopeful that we can, we can do better than we have been doing, uh, but mass testing should be done. Like, me, I know y'all are debating it. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. And, and it's being debated. And, and, and again, I'm a scientist and, and, and I understand <laughs> right. the debate because and, and we need to have strong data that, that, that supports it. And so my colleagues will remind me that and they'll say, Don, uh, when we look at the population of the United States in general and we do that albumin to creatinine ratio test that you're talking about, we find six to eight percent people who have a positive test indicating that they are at high risk of chronic kidney disease. And Don, from our standpoint, that's not a high enough rate to recommend the expense and the effort of doing nationwide testing of everyone. But then I say, but when I do that type of testing in our community, uh, poor black and brown communities, particularly the communities that surrounds our health and wellness center, the rate is 48%. talk about and nationwide doesn't necessarily have to mean every city in the nation nationwide can mean we are pinpointing major metropolitan areas with high proportions of of black and brown people that we know are you know and let's let's just look at the 140 million poor we're we're targeting the the people that fall below the poverty line we know that the poverty line those below the poverty line have health care disparities that we that don't don't exist to the same level for those of us above it. Absolutely. So let's target the hundred and forty million. Right. You know, we don't have to make it. It doesn't have to be a, a black or brown thing, because a lot of what we're experiencing is a poor people problem. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so. So black, brown, white, Asian, what, whatever ethnic group you're in, if you fall into that 140 million that are poor, you're, gonna, you're likely to have, much more likely to have health care disparities that we need to address. Correct. So couldn't we target the major metropolitan cities with and specifically the areas in those metropolitan cities that have high concentrations of poor people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you know, uh, Tiffany, we understandably have to make not only the health-related argument, but we have to make the cost-effectiveness argument uh, in order to support policy. And we think that we can make that that, argument uh, that successful cost effectiveness argument. You know the, the, how expensive mm-hmm. kidney dialysis is. Mm-hmm. You know how expensive kidney transplant is. Mm-hmm. It is quite expensive. However, the interventions that we do to prevent individuals from developing chronic kidney disease, when we identify that they have a risk for chronic kidney disease, are relatively inexpensive. We're talking about healthy eating. We're talking about healthy moving. And for those who are candidates, we're talking about drugs that they would take on a daily basis that are relatively cheap. Many of these medications that were developed 30 years ago that we show are so-called kidney protective medicines are relatively cheap. And so our analysis suggests that if we were to do this screening, and picked up about half of those individuals that I've just described in these mm-hmm. high-risk communities who have risk for chronic kidney disease, it is indeed cost-effective to give them yes. these relatively inexpensive medicines, to put them on the, on the food patterns that work for them, and to give them structured physical activity. That is a cost-effective intervention to prevent them from developing what we call in-stage kidney disease and the enormous expense that comes in managing those individuals. The enormous monetary expense and the enormous human expense. The, yes. the quality of life is, is uh, it's, it's not, if we can prevent what the toll that this takes on the quality of life for individuals who end up in end-stage renal disease, 
then we would be remiss in not doing it. I agree. And and as someone with a business background, I'm also uh, <laughs> look, excited. Look at the about, numbers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited about the numbers, too, because imagine not just the health and avoidance of the cost of, of managing chronic kidney disease. But think, Tiffany, about these individuals now being employable and exactly. remaining employable. Exactly. So that is an additional mm-hmm. cost-effective uh, benefit, that they're now better able to support their families and continue to support their fam- families. So from our standpoint, this is a win-win all the way around. Yeah. And so we feel very strongly, as I'm sure that you do, that this community-based strat, uh, screening is really a, an effective strategy that we should continue to employ uh, to prevent and, and manage identified uh, chronic kidney disease. And you have been listening to On the Record with Tiffany and, and my special guest, uh, Dr. Donald Wesson, uh, he's a, a, a kidney doctor by trade and, and also a, a, a one of the best scientists I've ever come into contact with. And I meet a lot of scientists. <laughs> so um, thank you, Dr. Wesson. And come back, you all, and listen to uh, Dr. Wesson. And, uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about um, what do these... Uh, what does the topic of healthcare disparities mean? What does that mean uh, to the rest of us? And how can? What are some good solutions that we have here? On the record with Tiffany is always about solutions. So. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation, and I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis? or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister, is your brother, is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit, Or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. Can you tell us a little bit about the the new drugs that are on the market that slow down the progression of kidney disease? Yes, Tiffany, I'm glad to have the chance to to do so. Uh, So we've known for years that blood pressure control helps to slow uh, kidney disease. And some of the particular blood pressure medications, the so-called ACE inhibitors or mm-hmm. angiotensin receptor uh, blockers or ARBs, historically have been used and continue to be used. Uh, but in recent years, we've recognized that, that some of the complications of chronic kidney disease also help to worsen chronic kidney disease. And one of those is a subject that I have studied for 35 years. It's called metabolic acidosis. So one of the many things that the kidney helps to remove from our blood is acid. Just by our regular metabolism, just by the things that we eat, we add acid to the blood. And were that acid not to be removed, it can cause mischief. One of the things that the kidney does is remove acid from the blood, puts it into the urine, and it keeps us in balance. But as kidney function declines, the kidney is less able to get rid of that acid, that acid accumulates, and we develop this condition we call metabolic acidosis. And one of the, the, uh, the items, one of the, these complications that my laboratory has studied over the last 35 years is metabolic acidosis and the harm that it does. Bottom line is 
the, when you have metabolic acidosis, it worsens kidney disease with time. When you treat metabolic acidosis, it makes uh, 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 it slows the progression of, of, of chronic kidney disease. And so there are medications that are on the market uh, that we have now, most notably uh, baking soda or sodium bicarbonate that we use to treat metabolic acidosis that uh, some of our studies and studies from other individuals, other labs have shown slows the, the progression of, of chronic kidney disease. But there are newer drugs on the market that do the same thing. And I'm working with uh, a, a company now that has a uh, a drug that's being tested based on some of our research to treat metabolic acidosis, um, and the uh, the, uh, the the opportunity then to treat metabolic acidosis in a new way, in a way to not only make the metabolic acidosis better, but also to help slow the progression of chronic kidney disease. So the bottom line is that? that treating metabolic acidosis helps. We're trying to see if there are better ways by which to treat it that can help it even better. What what company are you working with? What company is, is creating the drug? The, the company is called Triceta. It's based in mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco. So what uh, what is the... When is the drug expected to get to market? Uh, we don't know. It's still being tested. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, it's been tested uh, now for probably the last year or so and still waiting on what the final results are going to be. Uh, uh, and so we are, are uh, optimistic and hopeful that this will be a helpful drug. But uh, the... Uh, the final results are not out yet, just yet. So Triceta is is um, is looking at slowing the progression of of kidney disease. Ways that 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 uh, they can do that. Uh huh. So Triceta is looking at uh, treating metabolic acidosis specifically as a way by which to slow the progression of kidney disease. And uh, our laboratory has shown that metabolic acidosis makes kidney disease worse, as has other laboratories. And there are many ways by which you can treat metabolic acidosis, and some of which we have right now. Uh, like I said, baking soda and, and diet are ways by which you can treat metabolic acidosis. And there are studies that suggest that treating metabolic acidosis in that way helps to slow the worsening of chronic kidney disease. This new drug that Triceta is testing is now designed to see whether or not this drug also slows the progression of chronic kidney disease and don't have final uh, uh, data in just yet, but uh, should be in the next year or two. But it sounds promising. Um, what do you think about, about the artificial kidney and some of the other, other uh solutions or potential solutions uh, in terms of therapeutics? Uh, well, the artificial kidney is, is exciting because just like um, you can have uh, 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 machines that can take over the function of, of, of organs, many very talented scientists over the years have been working decades to come up with ways by which they can uh, design a kidney, an artificial kidney, that unlike the dialysis machine, that you have to go to the machine and have the machine clean your blood. These artificial kidneys are being designed to be attached to your body and allow you to continue to, to go on and, and do your activities of the day while that uh, uh, machine uh, cleans the blood so-called artificial kidney is um, that the technology continues to develop. One of the ways by which it is developing is making it smaller and more, uh, more user-friendly and also more effective in doing the job of cleaning these waste from the blood that the kidney uh, typically does. Wow. Every time I, you know, to say that the, the uh, kidney space you know, we've we've had some innovations over the last 30 years, but it feels like in the last, you know, 
four or five years, things have just exploded in terms of, of uh, research and innovation that's, that's coming our way. Yeah, it has. And um, it, it really is a function of the so-called basic research that, 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 that the scientists are doing. The more we understand how the kidney works and what stops it from working well, the better we are to, deserve, uh, to be able to design both therapies and technology that can uh, help replace that, that function. And from my standpoint, better still, prevent the function from getting worse in the first place. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about is that in recent years, the preventive kind of research has really been uh, moving forward. Uh, when I was a fellow almost 40 years ago, we were really more focusing on how do you better treat existing kidney disease. But over the last 40 years, the, revert, the, the research has advanced to the point that now we're really focusing on how do you keep someone with healthy kidneys maintaining healthy kidneys. And to me, that's a very important uh, advancement of research going forward the preventive type uh, technologies. Uh, I, I fully agree with you. Uh, what do you think, uh, what are your views on uh, the healthcare disparities, the things that we've, we're hearing a lot about algorithms and, and how that's affecting uh, um, who is selected for a transplant? Um, so how do you, what are your views on that? What well, uh, healthcare disparities, as the name says, is that there are, mm -hmm highly disproportionate appearances of diseases that, uh, in uh, populations depending on who you are, what your mm -hmm. ethnicity is, and where you mm -hmm. live. And chronic kidney disease is almost the poster child for that, mm -hmm. is that it is really um, uh, a good example of healthcare disparities. Black and brown and poor people are much more likely to have uh, chronic kidney disease uh, right. than those uh, who are not. And because of that, uh, as you said, people are trying to, to determine algorithms to help determine, based on some of the characteristics I've just said, who is at risk and using those, uh, for instance, artificial intelligence to help us determine that. One of the struggles that we're having right now is that the artificial intelligence uh, algorithms are not being tested on a very diverse population. It is being tested primarily on uh, uh, populations that are not black and brown. And one of the struggles with that is that if you're testing an algorithm on primarily, let's say, predominantly white populations or uh, highly resourced populations, and then you try to apply that same algorithm to a black and brown, low resource population, the translation doesn't work very well. And so one of the strategies that we are now doing, is, for instance, to try to get more black and brown people uh, in these examinations to help uh, refine these, uh, these artificial intelligence things. One of, the, one of the, the struggles that we have right now in terms of COVID is that we're trying to determine, uh, for instance, antibody responses to some of the uh, uh, antibodies, uh, uh, the, the vaccines that are being tested. And there are relatively few folks who are, are included in the uh, populations who are black and brown. And that's really a concern because we want to be able to see that all populations uh, can respond or not to a particular uh, 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 vaccine. And so that's well, and why it's, a, it's very important for us uh, to be parts of those testing populations. Yeah, and it's of concern because uh, black and brown people make up a, a, a large, large percentages of, of the folks who are, are adversely affected by COVID. So you right. have to have them in, in uh, any sort of, of study that's being done in regards to antibodies. You, wanna, you definitely want to have the population that's affected by it. Correct. Correct. 
So that means we need to ramp up our efforts to get individuals from black and brown communities. And I understand for someone who's been doing these kind of recruitments for studies for the last 30 years, very hard <laughs> to get black and brown folks to volunteer for studies because of the understandable suspicion that our communities have with respect to the medical research establishment, because we've performed very unethically in certain instances uh, in the past. Right. We have done, we have used what we call trusted agency uh, institutions in Dallas to help uh, with that. And that has been primarily uh, having relationships with our, our church partners who are able to provide us with that trusted agency that, mm -hmm. that, then we can leverage that in in uh, recruiting individuals for uh, the uh, the chronic kidney disease studies that we've done. I think the same thing can be used to get folks into uh, these COVID antibody tests. Uh, I think you're I think you're right. Uh, you know, we've uh, at Texas Kidney Foundation, uh, we have spent the majority of our, our time, we've, we're a, a pretty young foundation. We've been in existence since uh, 2011. Um, but our we've spent much of our time building relationships in the community to become a trusted agent because uh, it's a very important aspect of, of uh, getting people the care that they need. They People have to trust you. Yes. in order to even want to accept the care from you that you're giving because Correct. you know it, it's it's not enough to just walk in and say hey we've got some tests for you Correct. and and we want to give you these free tests and give you some free health care it's because of the the uh the sordid history <laughs> that that our yeah. our nation has in regards to uh, how we have conducted um, trials and and uh, studies in the past on on uh, ethnic minorities in, Absolutely. in this, this so country, so it's, uh, it's up to us and the medical research establishment to earn back that trust, and 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 we've done that primarily by working with our church colleagues. And I see like certain areas have done a great job. There are some some. Um, some universities that have, have done really well. There's a um, um, a, a few programs that that have like upwards of of uh, ten thousand, fifteen thousand people who who have have uh, who are in their clinical trials and and are you know ethnically diverse uh, and and that you know they've done a good job of of building relationships like yep. yours, like your your program, right. And, and I can tell you, Tiffany, we've been at it now for 10 years. That's right. I was really, going to say it takes years to it do it. It takes years uh, <laughs> to be able to build that type of trust. And, mm -hmm. and so those of you who are encouraged to do that, uh, be patient mm -hmm. uh, because you do have to build and earn that trust. And again, I, I emphasize we have done it primarily by working with institutions that already have the trust of the community. Mm -hmm. And for us, that has been the faith community, and that, that's that's how we've we've been uh, reaching out as well as is in the faith community because uh, the faith community uh, they're there when nobody else is when when everybody <laughs> you know when everybody else is you know has rolled out the faith community is still there with bake sales and and uh, putting on on vaccination drives and, and, and everything else uh, to, to keep people healthy, as, as healthy as they can and as they know to, to be uh, or, or how to be. I, I saw one, I saw something that the National Institute of Health is doing and they have um, an entire series for the faith community for kidney disease that uh, can be taught in churches and in in uh synagogues and wherever you wherever you uh find people of faith gathered you can teach them about kidney disease and we've learned that the that the best deliverer of that content information is our community health workers 
Mm-hmm. Uh, as good as I, I think I am in terms of talking about kidney disease, mm-hmm. um, it, it, we've learned that that message is much better delivered and received by individuals in the community who are closer to those uh, that, that, uh, with whom they're working. And our community health workers are the best ambassadors for this in our, in our work. Dr. Wesson, thank you so much for coming and uh, for talking to us about uh, kidney disease and your wonderful research. Uh, I appreciate everything that you're doing for families, uh, for the families that we serve here in the great state of Texas and and beyond because your research definitely transcends the borders of of the state of Texas. I'm just happy that we get to call you ours. Thank you, Tiffany, for giving me the opportunity uh, to talk. So hopefully this won't be the last time we get a chance to chat. Oh, no, it won't be. You know, I'm going to keep on knocking on your door and calling you up. (laughs) (laughs) And you all have been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. And I just want you to to remember, too, that your health is in your hands. You're not helpless. You're not beaten down. You have people that will help you and help you walk through the, the trials and tribulations of, of, of health care. Uh, there, there are many of us out there. All you have to do is give us a call, stop by the foundation, uh, email me, what, whatever way you want to contact us, give us, contact us, but we'll help you walk through uh, the difficulty of, of, uh, of kidney disease and help you take back your power you have you do have power you do have a voice and we're going to help you help you achieve that and you've been listening to on the record with tiffany you've been enjoying on the record with tiffany we encourage you to share these stories with friends and family you can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com and join us next week for on the record with tiffany on 930am the answer